Happy April Fool's Day. Listen, lady. Fuck <laughs> off. Did it, okay. Well, this isn't your intro. holiday. This isn't for people like you. What does that mean? What is it? What is it? What do you mean? What does that mean? It's what is this people is a, like me, uh, Liz. When was the last time we did a fucking prank on, or tricked somebody? Uh, none of your beeswax. See, you can't even think about it. Do you know how many pranks I've done in just the past month? I t- I think I told talked I about this in the show before, but you know, like the good place thing, the Phoebe Bridgers thing. I know you're full of pranks. You're I'm doing pranking. I'm doing full prank. Um, so is this your day of rest? Or I'm is not this saying. A holiday. What if anyone this? asked me if I've ever hooked up with Phoebe Bridgers today, I'm telling them no. If anyone asks if I've ever hooked up with fucking Steve Buscemi's uncle today, I'm telling them no. If anyone asks me if uh, if my dad is the head writer on the TV show The Good Place, and if I hooked up with the fucking crazy lady from that TV show, I'm telling them no in the first place, yes in the second. <laughs> All right, we got to make this quick. I got to go to the Prankster's Ball in uh, oh my God. at Magic City tonight. I <laughs> The Prankster's Ball, Magic City. Yeah, Who's yeah, that? in Atlanta. It's oh like a uh it's like a club uh for uh gentlemen. Prankster's Ball just I am I really immediately think of like Anaheim. It just sounds like something that was Anaheim. Like in Anaheim. Yeah, like House of Blue. Let's go to the Prankster's Ball oh, at the House yeah, of Blues. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. In I downtown see what you're Disney. In Anaheim. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a we lot should do of a show at the House of bowling Blues. shirts, which are, you know, back. So, are sense. those? Oh, uh, yeah, but those are back amongst like 19 year olds who are addicted to ketamine. Those aren't back among yeah, the people yeah. that it's they Yeah, it's like matter. a Zoomer art kid thing. Yeah, that's, I, I will say, what's with the big clothes? Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. I'm Brace. Uh, we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. Not that I want you to wear tight clothes. The podcast is called True and On. Um, welcome. To the show. <laughs> Hello. Um, we have a fun show today, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going a little back to our roots, talking 9 11. Mm-hmm. Got a 9 11 update, yeah. kind of adjacent. It, it's 9 11. It's like a 9 11 ish update. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A 9 11 and a half. So I want you all to kind of close your eyes and remember the spirit, not of 9 11, but on the day after 9 12, when all of America felt like we were together. Mm. And it was okay to be racist for it. <laughs> Keep it in. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Passover 3 True and On Edition. We have with us here live in the studio, well, only, you know, electronically, uh, Alex Rubenstein, who is here to, uh, well, talk a little bit about some recordings that came out recently that he did a little article about. Uh, Alex, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd call the article little, but uh, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, actually, it was that's true. It is quite a long article. Three, three and a half thousand words or something like that. But yeah, I tend to run long. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty useful in this case because before, well, before I get ahead of myself here, what the fuck is the article called and what it's about and why did you write it? Well, the article is about uh, 
Anwar al-Awlaki, because basically what happened is the, the Houthi government of Yemen, which is like a revolutionary government that took over power from like the Saudi-backed government in 2015, I think, uh, they released recordings of CIA director, former CIA director George Tenet, uh, making a phone call in what they told me was the year 2001. Um, and it, the phone call is to uh, the the then president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And in it, he, he basically angrily uh, demands the release of a prisoner who uh, he refuses to name and is uh, in Yemeni prison on suspicion of being involved in the bombing of the USS Cole that year. I'm sorry, the year prior, 2000. Um, so after that recording came out, uh, Major General, Saudi intelligence officer, Major General uh, Qadir al-Shami, I think is his name, uh, said that the person who the phone call was in regards to was Anwar al-Awlaki, who is an American Yemeni imam, uh, a very enig- enigmatic figure, uh, kind of like one of the leading um, names that maybe Americans are already familiar with uh, in regards to the war on terror because uh, he was really hard to nail down, um, you know, at the time. And uh, there was a lot of debate over when he was radicalized and like his involve his his level of involvement with the 9-11 hijackers and the underwear bomber and the Christmas Day bomber and like all these other uh terrorist fort hood shooter the fort hood shooter exactly yeah just like you know more than a dozen of these guys um had some involvement with al of the names that we've heard over the past like 20 years so he's he's been like a really uh central figure to like people trying to understand what the fuck is actually going on um and so what i did with this article is i you know reproduced the houthi claims and i i kind of gave a background on Alalaki and uh, what his life has been like. So before we get into a little bit more about Anwar's background, which I think is um, important for people to understand as we kind of go through this story, let's listen to some of the ten. What we sh- I kind of want to call it the tenant tapes because it sounds very cool. Um, but the tapes of George Tenet. Can we call it Tenant Gate? Ooh, Tenant Gate. Yeah. Yes. My person. My problem. My issue, and I'm calling you because it's very serious with me personally, this man must be released. Major General Al-Kamish, is that his name? The PSO Director, Major General Ghalib Al-Kamish. He knows all about this. Mohammed Al-Raiz. Ambassador, and quite frankly, I'm calling this my responsibility. I've talked to everybody in my government. I told them that I was going to make this call. Uh, I want to work with you, but I need this man released in the next 48 hours. This is my very personal appeal to you. After 50 days, this must stop. And so that was the audio trailer for the film Tenet 2, which is a new Christopher Nolan <laughs> picture coming out later this year. So that is apparently, uh, you know, uh, CIA Director George Tenet talking in 2001. Uh, so before we dive, I think, into where Al-Laki was or maybe was when that phone call was was, uh, was was supposed to have been made, let's talk a little bit about Al-Laki's earlier life. Because Al-Laki was, I think, sort of famously actually an American citizen. I think a lot of people view these as like, you know, especially... Uh, 
in in later years it's like you know uh, radical terrorism this like product of of these people coming over here and you know uh, uh, terrorizing our youth and getting people you know into these radical ideas at these mosques but he was born i believe in new mexico las cruces new mexico um and uh, and and lived in America for quite a long time before he apparently developed these sort of radical views. I'm, I'm using quotation marks there. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was supposedly born in New Mexico, although there's like some questions over that. Uh, one uh, conservative and uh, you know perhaps biased uh, author, Paul Sperry, who I uh, I talked about some of his work mm-hmm. in my article. Um, he seems to think that uh, he wasn't born in New Mexico. Um, because he couldn't find any of, uh, you know, the official records for his birth. Um, and in fact, Alalaki has been, uh, arrested or was like, there was some legal case against him for passport fraud. Um, although Mm -hmm. that was, uh, for claiming that he was born in Yemen. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing and, uh, you know, I don't think it's super important, um, where exactly he was born because, you know, we know that he spent a good deal of time in the United States and we know that he spent mm-hmm. a good deal of time in Yemen. But uh, there's this tendency from the experts uh, to kind of say that Al-Awlaki was radicalized uh, in the post-9-11 era, uh, you know, when the U.S., after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, after the U.S. invaded Iraq, uh, and yeah. after there were raids against people he knew um, whom he didn't consider to be extremist, uh, whatever. Um, I tend to take a different analysis. Um, I think that, uh, the experts really don't want to address the, uh, radicalizing effect that, um, Operation Cyclone in Afghanistan had, um, because, you know, the CIA pumped $40 billion worth of weapons. They were, you know, educating, uh, you know, drawing up curriculum, um, for, for, you know, children in Pakistan and Afghanistan that was jihadist in nature, um, yep. In fact, in Afghanistan, U.S. troops are still still dealing with this headache of um, all these school books that like tell you to you know stab a Soviet when you see them um, or a foreigner. Um, so you know, I think that because Alalaki was involved in his college years uh, going over during the summer to Afghanistan um, to work with uh, the Mujahideen, which went on to become the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and you know, there's even uh, a, a, a genealogy that goes all the way to isis you know um basically all these modern terror groups trace their roots back to that uh u.s campaign um to uh give the soviets their own vietnam as as um the officials were putting it at the time um i tend to think that he was radicalized during that period uh rather than you know um after like you know just being an innocent guy who happened to know all these hijackers who happened to like be involved with all these unsavory characters like the blind sheik um who mm-hmm. uh yeah. was in prison for the uh, 1993 world trade center bombings um so i i you know i've uh, had some pushback on my article um in particular, uh, there's a New York Times reporter, former New York Times reporter uh, named Scott Shane, who I talked to a bit for a follow-up piece just because I wanted to, like, give his uh, kind of expert opinion on uh, whether it was al at the center of the tapes. But, um, you know, I think people like that tend to overlook the uh, – uh, what a cataclysm this of this Operation Cyclone uh, created and how it went on to, uh, you know, set the, the stage for – um, later campaigns in Bosnia and uh, yeah. and what we're what we've seen in Syria in the past five years or ten years now actually um, and and elsewhere. 
in Africa too, you know. And there were reports too that Alakwi, when he came, Alakwi, when he came back from Afghanistan in the nineties, that he was, or I think he recruited at least one, if not more, uh, like people to go over to Bosnia to fight with the Mujahideen. So it seemed like there was a kind of like. I mean, that he was quite active in all of this after he came back from Afghanistan. Yeah, and in his college years, um, he yeah. he urged some some kid to go over to uh, Chechnya to fight. Um, and this is just, like, one example that we have. Like, I I think there's right. also this tendency to assume that we know everything about Al-Alaki's life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that's kind of a, 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 a silly assumption. Um, but there was this kid that he uh, urged to go over to... Um, to Chechnya, and it actually got Alalaki like in uh, in the bad graces of um, of like his local Muslim leadership. So they kind of like expelled mm. him. Uh, that's when he went to San Diego. But that kid died like a few years later in in fighting in mm. Chechnya. Yeah, that's that's one thing. Is like is uh, is Sperry in your in your article and sort of the rejoinder that you you put in there or in your follow up article says that like well he was just like a pretty regular conservative Muslim during during the like nineteen nineties early two thousands but that doesn't necessarily track with getting like a talking a guy into going to fight in Chechnya either right I mean that was I mean especially and especially it doesn't track with getting kicked out of your you know uh, your sort of your local community for that either yeah. Um, right, exactly. And, uh, you know, that, that was like, uh, Scott Shane takes a more liberal view of, of all this where he says like, you know, well, this happened later. This is like, yeah, he kind of places the blame on, on like post nine 11 us policy. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that, that was my impression. Um, and you know, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's like not a small number of Muslims that were radicalized by that, uh, because of how awful it was. Um, but uh, I don't think Al Alaki was one of them. I think that, uh, and I don't think that uh, Paul Sperry, who takes the opposite of view, really yeah, places yeah, the blame on on Operation Cyclone either. Um, I think for for people like that, it's more of like uh, just like, well, they're like radical Muslims, you know, like uh, they want to mm. destroy the West. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's in the Quran, et cetera, yeah, all that kind of right, shit. Yeah, right. I, I think too, like that, like. Uh, the sort of more liberal approach also puts a little too much emphasis on blowback stuff, right? Like, I think that, like, Operation Cyclone was at its core like an intelligence operation. I mean, it was, you know, sort of yeah, asymmetrical warfare. But it was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, like, that, that, you know, those people didn't just, like, the people in charge of that operation didn't just disappear for, from the scene. They didn't lose all their contacts. They didn't cut off no. contact with everybody. And so, it's, you know, one has to imagine that, you know, a, a lot of connections were still made after this. And, and that a lot of this is probably, uh, I mean, in the case of 9-11, I think done on purpose, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I like that you say that there's uh, a lot of those people are still on the scene. I mean, uh, I, I did a previous article about one guy by the name of Zalmay Khalilzad. This is like pretty unrelated, so I apologize for the aside. But uh, go ahead. Zalmay Khalilzad was, uh, you know, as a college student, at least according to a a, a University of Chicago um, biography on biography page on him that I found that was archived, uh, participated in Operation Cyclone under. Uh, Brzezinski, I don't know how to say his uh, first name. So, <laughs> Zabrigniew. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so, uh, and then, you know, he worked on Afghanistan throughout the Clinton years. During the Clinton years, he was uh, inviting the Taliban over to the White House um, to talk about, you know, administering this uh, U.S. backed uh, UNOCAL pipeline. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, he worked on Afghanistan in the Bush years and then the Obama years. And then Trump brought him on to lead the negotiations with the Taliban. Um, and then Biden kept him on. So he's been in like every administration working yeah. on Afghanistan, even though he like created the problem. Uh, at one point, he tried to have himself installed as the unelected ruler. Um, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like this is out there. Um, and th- that's like another figure that like, you know, I almost think that this guy should get more attention than Anwar al did, you know? Mm. Um, but well, he's certainly has a lot of stories. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's so, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the U S hasn't, uh, like really done anything to address the problem that it created with operation cyclone or like cracked down. Like again, Osama bin Laden was like a, uh, a main benefactor of operation cyclone. Mm-hmm. The CIA contracted him to build all these tunnels through, uh, Afghanistan. And then when Bosnia came around, they were like the, he had, a he had like a, a front group, uh, bin Laden yeah. did, uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but, um, they had like a, um, a refugee center in Brooklyn and they'd use that center to like send young, young um, Muslims in America over to Afghanistan. And then they used it again in Bosnia. And so like, this is like an, I, I do think that it, that it's blowback, but I think it's blowback from operation cyclone, not blowback mm. necessarily from the post nine 11 uh, U S policy. Although yeah, it was yeah. admittedly awful. You said that, and I think this is true, that it's really hard, you know, how much we actually do know about Al-Alakwi's life. You know, there are so many holes in trying to piece together so much. I know I've looked at, like, so many, like, I don't know, heavily redacted and then partially, uh, you know, released FBI reports. It's very hard to put stuff together. And a lot of this reporting basically stopped. (laughs) Like, people aren't really looking into a lot of this stuff, you know, which is why your piece is so um, so important. Yeah, um, but at some point he does like make contact with Al Qaeda. Like yeah. at some point he links up with these guys. And like, when do we think that was? Well, I, I think there's debate, right? Uh, if yeah. if what the Houthis say is true, then that would be in at least as early as 2000 when he was in prison over the USS Cole bombing. Um, if uh, that's not true, if it's the case that you know he didn't. I mean, and then he has that the relationship with three of the 9-11 hijackers who, who were right. Al-Qaeda uh, in, in 2001, um, and that's kind of dismissed uh, by the experts, um, His like the extent of his relationship, even though FBI documents uh, appear to show him purchasing plane tickets. Uh, he hooked them up with his associates to get them apartment buildings in San Diego and, and yes. uh, in Virginia. Uh, yeah, it, it's that's that's the wild. So, like, I think we should pause on that for a second. Yeah, it's like that is dismissed by by some of the so called experts, but like, I mean, that is a hell of a coincidence. So, you know, as he a non expert, it's as one of a non expert. Yes, I mean, the guy he had relationships with them in San Diego. Then he moved. Yeah. Then he went on a sabbatical for a while, and that's I think when mm-hmm. he was in in Yemeni prison. And then he mm. went back to Falls Church, Virginia, which is right outside DC somehow became, like, the top ma- imam at, like, the number three mosque in the United States, maybe even the number one mosque. It's a really big mosque. Um, yeah, and then, which like, also happens to be, like, just an hour away from CIA headquarters. Right, Not right. even an hour. I think it's, like, five miles yeah, away from it's CIA really, headquarters. Yeah, it's really close. Um, and, and then, you know, um, the hijackers showed up at that mosque uh, totally coincidentally, if you ask the, uh, you know, three-letter agencies or, or the experts— um, and you know, before they like went to a McDonald's, they were at the mosque that he was, he was leading. 
So, and, yeah. and then, you know, um, yeah. Mohammed Atta, who he, the you know, the masterminds, uh, uh, allegedly, of the 9-11 attacks, um, he, Al-Awlaki, so this is a fourth one that he has a relationship to because he purchased, appears to purchase, have purchased plane tickets, according to the FBI documents that I viewed, um, and he had his phone number um, in Germany, you know? Um, yeah. So, yep. uh, I mean, Al-Awlaki was... Uh, admitted to be i mean he didn't admit it but the fbi admitted that he was a spiritual leader for the hijackers but the fbi they'll release documents showing that he purchased these plane tickets they'll release like reports saying that like uh he you know he helped set them up with housing um and like connected them with uh you know su- suspected saudi intelligence officers um yeah. But they, but when it comes to like actually having any culpability in any of it, it's like radio silence. It's like no, we don't, we don't really think so. There's no evidence to support yeah. this. Like it, it's, it's mind boggling, frankly. Yeah, because in San Diego, I mean, I, I think he hooked him up with Omar Al Bayoumi there. Yeah. He yeah. was getting money from the Saudi government and giving it to to the hijackers, which yeah. is you know something we covered on our 9/11 episodes. But like, I mean, it's it's and 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 Alaki himself was being trailed by the FBI at this point. I mean, they like we, we were talking before we started recording. They were uh, they were trying to pinch him for. Uh, frequenting sex workers uh, well they were in, yeah they were using that in order to try to get at him exactly yeah um, i think at this point he when he was in san diego he had started working out of a charity that basically was exactly the same kind of setup that you were t- you were talking about with bin laden in brooklyn where it was just you know one of these money laundering setups that al-qaeda was using and so it looks like the FBI had started investigating him as early as june 1999 which is like you know, if we're talking about uh, Tenet making that call, I mean, that's, you know, significantly before that this guy is on the radar of the FBI. And then very suddenly, about just like a couple months later, the FBI like shuts down their investigation of him. Right. And they were investigating him not just for, uh, you know, being a part of this like um, money, money laundering front for Al Qaeda, but also for meeting with like a top associate of the Blind Sheikh, who again was. Involved with the right. 1993 World Trade Center bombing. I mean, to perhaps ask some questions. <laughs> the, I mean, an FBI, why would the FBI shut down an investigation like that just like right after they make contact with, like, you know, Brace mentioned with the sex workers? It's like, well, either they think they he's onto them or someone called up the FBI and was like, You're, you guys are getting in our backyard. Get out of here. Right. AKA treading on another agency, AKA the CIA. Like, I'm just trying to make it very clear for people that basically the idea is that this guy who um, had, you know, a lot of evidence, but that non experts like ourselves <laughs> believe <laughs> points to him. I mean, quite literally buying the plane tickets and having very close relationships with, you know, three, if not four of the 9 11 hijackers was. A CIA asset, at, like as early as the mid mid to late nineties, like that's that's a very significant uh, development, <laughs> we could say. Yeah, and I think we just have to kind of look at like the Clinton administration and and like why they were cultivating Muslim assets. Mm. You know, this is before the war on terror. This is before mm-hmm. the U.S. kind of like intractably fucked the Middle East. Um, although, you know, 
um, what they did in Afghanistan. Laying the groundwork. Was, yeah, yeah. They, they were laying the groundwork, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that they were, they wanted a war on terror. They just wanted to have mm-hmm. like all these client, client states. Um, yeah. Like, for example, the Taliban, you know, so um, right, right. to have somebody who's kind of friendly to, first of all, he's a very useful asset being both fluent in English and Arabic. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he's a charismatic guy, uh, very intelligent. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that it's not surprising that the CIA would want to cultivate him, um, at, you know, during the Clinton years um, to kind of like set up this like regime uh you know, a, a, a network of regimes in, in, in the Middle East to, like, you know, be friendly to U.S. business interests. I don't think that they necessarily saw that it was going to turn into what it did, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that al-Awlaki was would be sought at that time. I thought it was interesting, too, especially because he was hanging out with some people who had some, let's say, great interest in uh, the Pentagon, uh, in Paul's (laughs) church in San Diego. And then six (laughs) months after the attack, he he was dining in the Pentagon with top military officials as sort of like a part of a Muslim outreach program. Because the the sort of invention of Alaki as this sort of... I, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe our younger listeners won't remember this because especially the rhetoric has sort of changed, even though the, 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 the violence and the actual policy hasn't whatsoever. Um, but in the post-9-11 years, there was this sort of like push to be like, well, listen, all right, we might be surveilling you. We might be trying to get you guys to do terror and like convincing, you know, maybe your mentally ill cousin to buy a knife so we can arrest him. But like, you know, we don't care if you're a moderate Muslim, like you're, you know, you're our guy. Like, you know, we're trying to do this outreach. Like the Bush, this the Bush White House said this. Yeah. Exactly. This is America. They had this sort of, um, you know, uh, pretense of doing that. I mean, I'm sure that they, yeah. Anyways, uh, so Alaki became sort of this like media figure where he was invited onto all these programs. There's like an interview Washington Post did with him when he's kind of driving in his car talking about, you know, how problems with the Taliban. Um, he was and everywhere. It, yeah, yeah, he was, he, Times, really, he really NPR, was. Washington Post. Yeah. He was like the moderate dude. They were like, look, this is the guy who's like the good Muslim, not like yeah. the other ones. Exactly. And like it, 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 I mean, that would sort of like track with, with maybe this sort of new cover, you know, maybe they're trying to get for him, right? You know, where he's like, you know, now he's, he's this guy who we have in place. And he's, he's, he's an imam at this very, you know, we say one of the biggest mosques in America. Uh, and, uh, but he he leaves the country, I think, in around two thousand two. Like he he splits uh, for the UK. Yeah, UK slash Yemen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, look, there there were FBI agents going to FBI counterintelligence officials, high high ranking ones, that were going to his uh, you know sermons. But uh, they were going there, and he he was getting interviewed by the Washington Post. He like he was like, you're right, the guy. And then he's going to the Pentagon, doing presentations, having a lunch on, uh, all these things. He's got friends in very high places, and it's like he's a young guy. He's like you know what, mm-hmm. like twenty eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a little bit older. Um, so forgive me for that if I'm wrong. But uh, he's a young guy, and like you just have to wonder, you know, did did somebody at 
one of these three letter agencies like go to a Washington Post editor and be like, this is the guy who you need to yeah. like follow around and film from while he's oh, driving yeah, around. And, like, I'm sure and it's true. funny too, because like one thing he says in that interview uh, is like, oh yeah, you know, every day I come home and then I check my emails. And then like later, all these years later, we'd find out that he's using his emails to like encourage uh, all these young Muslims to uh, attack various Western targets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really just, like, I don't think that people just, like, I mean, whether it's, like, uh, m- voices of moderate Islam or or anything, uh, I, I think that it's usually not a mistake when uh, some person comes from nowhere and is all of a sudden, like, everywhere, right? Um, yeah, I'm yeah, always absolutely. suspicious when I see that. And Al-Waki is a, a, a classic example. Um, and then, you know, he also had these, like, you know, to his credit, not to say that he was totally propelled, um, into fame, but, uh, you know, he had these, like, box set CDs that, like, where he gave, like, talks on, uh, various things in Islam, and those became really popular, um, those were, like, like, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for, like, a, um, a moderate Muslim household to have a a copy Mm -hmm. of, like, his teachings on the life of Muhammad, for example, um, through no fault of their own, of course, um, but he, you know, he really, uh, he really became like a, a very prominent figure, and then you know he left the U.S. Um, despite having friends in the FBI, apparently in the Pentagon, apparently he left, and the mosque cited a, a climate of fear and intimidation. Um, just whoops, right? Well, I mean, happened. I will say, I will say, at aftermath of nine eleven, certainly there was a climate yeah. of fear and intimidation among. I mean, still is among Muslims in America. Um, for Al Laki himself, just to take off like that that does seem a uh well the timing is pretty good for him Mm -hmm. yeah and and you know also i'll mention that like you know at the time that he was getting all these like uh positive media interviews he was giving like comments to um you know islamic websites where he was you know saying that you know really this is the fbi and the israelis and like i'm look i'm not gonna like (laughs) of course i have no love lost for for the israelis um but he was always weaselly right Mm. Um, and, yeah. and I guess that's my point. It's like this guy who, who, um, is supposed to be like this, uh, conservative, holy Im- imam is getting busted all the time for, you know, hiring sex workers. Um, his character was not, uh, right. was not just something that should have been taken at face value. And I think it's unfortunate that the only people who, who didn't do that were like Islamophobes, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why I think that the, I mean, your point about um, kind of like the experts, the, you know, industry line, the official line, the alphabet line, whatever we want to call it, (laughs) about them saying like, oh, he was a moderate, and then he like broke bad. He went to the UK and suddenly, you know, he's talking about how Palestinian suicide bombers are like the bee's knees and all this stuff. He had never done this before, blah, 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 like totally doesn't actually line up with what we can piece together. And then it becomes very clear that, I mean, as I think, Brace, you just said this, but just to repeat it, like, um, that the kind of invention of him as a moderate became really key for whatever story was going to need to be (laughs) told in order to explain what happens next, if that makes sense. I kind of just jumped around a little bit. What a great little story there, right? Like this guy who, you know, is this American-born guy who's, uh, you know, who's 
preaching peace and is this very charismatic preacher, all this kind of stuff, is so horrified by, you know, the American response to 9-11 that he has to turn to, you know, these more radical things. I mean, what what a, what a sort of compelling storyline if you mm. – if you, you know, if you're a, a government maybe that needs a lot of uh, radicals in order to, you know, to shoot, I mean, or at least to provide cover while you shoot all their friends and families too. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's fantastic if, if that's the intention. Um, I mean, he provides a really, really, really compelling story with that. I should say too, I kind of want to, I mean, because this is where he sort of becomes a, an Al-Qaeda star, like this point in his life, like... You said at the beginning, you were saying that um, our listeners and, you know, uh, in general, Americans would probably know Alakwi's name. He kind of became a figure, not obviously not of the same kind of, um, you know, the same kind of fame as Bin Laden, Osama Bin Laden, obviously. But he did occupy like a similar kind of narrative space in the, the kind of years where, if you're like me and you think Bin Laden was already dead. But where he had kind of like gone quiet, you know what I mean? Not a lot of you weren't hearing a lot from Bin Laden um, in the mid two thousands, and Alakwi like basically became this um, figure for the U.S. media um, to kind of like talk about, continue to talk about like the specter of Al Qaeda, and in particular how it, they were using like new media because Alakwi like. I mean, he was like big YouTube guy. He became like the big YouTube Al Qaeda guy. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, not not just YouTube, but he had like his own Facebook page. Uh, you know, he he was he was very big on social media, and I think you know that's where a lot of the people who uh, sought out his guidance and and eventually uh, went on to you know attempt to uh, kill people. Um, you know, connected with him. You know, they first heard about him through these CD box sets that he had. Uh, and then, um, you know, and, and we were talking earlier about how he left the U.S. for uh, for the U.K. and Yemen. And, you know, when he got to the U.K. and, and you know, was going between there and Yemen, it seems, um, he uh, started to, you know, increasingly preach extremist views, whereas he wasn't really doing that as much before. Um, so I think that's where... A lot of the experts get that idea that, that you know, it was post 9-11 that he was ra- radicalized. Um, but, you know, he was saying things against anyone who isn't a Muslim and saying, you know, Christians and Jews want to destroy Islam. Um, and, yeah, being uh, less uh, careful about uh, his embrace of, like, suicide attacks and such. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he he uh, had his own website uh, and... Um, was, you know, very prolific on there and, you know, reached a lot of people. But, you know, one thing that I think is important to note is that, you know, he came back to the U.S. in 2002 um, and he was actually stopped uh, and followed. He was he was followed by Saudi intelligence officers uh, at the airport where he was getting his connecting flight to JFK. And then at JFK, he was arrested um, and then, cause there, there was a warrant put out for him that morning. And then that morning it was, uh, withdrawn. The FBI ordered that the warrant be withdrawn. Um, so he went to, uh, mm. you know, Falls Church and met with this guy, um, who he talked to about recruiting young Muslims for jihad. Uh, and this, this guy even told his friends that, um, that he believed that al was, 
you know, working for the FBI and was trying to get him to say things he shouldn't. Uh, of course, this guy, I think his name is Altamimi, I forget his first name, um, he uh, later uh, got arrested for recruiting 11 Muslims to join the Taliban. Um, so even he thought that Al-Awlaki was working for the FBI. And yeah. around that time, um, there were documents, that internal FBI documents that were later released under a FOIA request to uh, Judicial Watch, a conservative uh, organization. Um, Tom Fitton. Yeah, exactly. He's one of the biggest human beings in America. He's a muscular guy, yeah. His arms are like Large bigger than man. my neck. <laughs> Very strange looking fella. But, uh, you know, these documents, there's one um, that Fox News reported on. Um, I found it in like a you know, PDF that was like 500 pages long, um, maybe halfway through. That um, and, and, you know, it should be mentioned that like Fox News has one article about this. And I didn't really see it anywhere else. Um, maybe there were yeah. uh, some other mainstream websites that reported on it. But what's notable is like it's in the in the subject line. You see that it's about Al-Awlaki and it's about the Osama bin Laden investigation. And the like subheadline is synopsis asset reporting. And this is like right around the time that he was arrested and then let go at JFK. Went to Falls Church to talk to this other guy about recruiting young Muslims for jihad, and then flew out no problem. And then, you know, at the same time, the 9-11 Commission is trying to contact Al-Awlaki and trying to locate him, um, unable to do so. And then the FBI, there's, like, all these, like, uh, uh, you know, exchanges between FBI agents where they're talking about their, you know, contacts with Al-Awlaki um, at the same time. So um, they were complaining about, like, the frequent and unrelenting attempts of the 9-11 Commission to talk to their guy. Um, and, and one of the FBI agents said to, to another, like, hey, isn't that, like, the prostitute guy? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, like, in, in History Commons, uh, which is, uh, to all listeners, a website which we very much wish you could go to. Uh, unfortunately, you can basically only consistently access it through Wayback Machine, but we'll link the uh, the Al-Laki page underneath this. Uh, talks about how the FBI, in 2004, on the same day the 9-11 com- uh, uh, report comes out, um, or, excuse me, the, uh, yeah, yeah, the same day the 9-11 commission report com- comes out, says that uh, the hijackers had no witting support in San Diego. So they're saying, like, oh, no, they had nothing to do with them in San Diego. Uh, and then, of course, the 9-11 commission is saying the exact opposite thing the same day. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too is like the 9-11 – we talked a little bit about um, al-Bayoumi, uh, the uh, Saudi intelligence mm-hmm. officer who was helping them out and giving them money um, from the from the royal family and working with al-Awlaki. Uh, you know, he was like, you know, painted – I think uh, one, one – uh, maybe it was like N- uh, NBC News said that he was painted like a good Samaritan in the 9-11 Commission report. And I went through the 9-11 Commission report for like all references to – Al-Bayoumi, Al-Awlaki, all these people. I didn't read the whole document, of course. It's huge. Um, but, like, he was, <laughs> he was like, basically, like, oh, there are these, like, some young Muslims who don't speak a lot of English and they need help, so I'm going to, like, give them an apartment and stuff. Um, but it was only with the 28 pages, which were released in, like, 2016, that we found out that, like, oh, yeah, he's, like, Saudi intelligence, you know. And there was another guy that he was working with, too, that was uh, Bosnan, uh Osama Basnan, I think his name was, and he was like a, a Saudi intelligence officer too. He later bragged to uh, an FBI asset that he did more than al-Bayoumi to help the 9-11 hijackers. Um, so like, like there were so many stones that were like either 
they they weren't unturned. They were turned up, and then like we put them back down, like right where they were. Yeah. Oh, nothing happened here. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's the case with almost everything to do with nine eleven. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just like, oh, look, well, look at this. That doesn't really mean anything to turn it back over. <laughs> or it's like that game of what's it with the cups where you have to kind of like where the person like moves the cup all around and you're supposed to follow the ball that's underneath. The that's cup a legitimate business, Liz. That's not a game, <laughs> and people can make a lot of money but that's doing what that. It feels like between all the different agencies passing it over, and it's like, oh, you know what I mean? It's hey, like that cup FBI work says is this, real. The work. Government says this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, but you know, by the mid two thousands, it's basically like, everyone's like, okay, like this fucking guy's in Al Qaeda. Like, yeah. Once you know, he started like this... appearing in like Al Qaeda videos with like a rocket launcher yeah. on his shoulder and shit. Like, I know. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I, I, I gotta say, look this guy up. It, he, not the most convincing, like looking militant, you know, he, he appears, to, he's like, he's got kind of the bin Laden, like you should be sitting, you know, cross-legged it's in very you know, maybe austere, yeah. a video or something. Exactly. With these austere like thick rimmed like glasses and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's kind of got the Soviet commissar ass glasses, like the fucking little Trotsky ones. I picture um, him, you, you ever see the movie, um, Four Tigers? I, I picture him lions? as like I the, have not four yeah. lions yeah where I picture him as like the guy who like goes to like the Al Qaeda training camp and has the rocket launcher on backwards on his shoulder and yeah. then kills everyone because <laughs> he's like he doesn't know what he's doing yeah yeah he does not he doesn't seem to be like the uh, the the baddest ass fighter in the world and and in fact like I don't think Al Laki himself has ever like been I mean it's been alleged that he's you know participated in the sense of like the goading people and stuff like yeah. that but he's never himself been like accused like he killed this person on this day in no, fact zero. At, at one point um in yemen when like essentially when any foreigner would get killed uh during the trial for the uh for the murderer they would be like they would like tack on like 10 years for alalaki in like absentia like oh, they'd really? be like, yeah. ah, he's also guilty. Yeah, because he was like, he was telling people to kill foreigners in Yemen. Yeah. Um, uh, and Saleh's son was actually. Well, and, and he did. He did. Uh, he did get imprisoned in Yemen in 2006. Uh, and you know, it was because uh, he was involved in a plot. I don't know his level of involvement or what was alleged. Um, it may have been planning. It may have been participation. I don't know. But uh, you know, they they Al Qaeda tried to kidnap. Uh, a U.S. military attaché and uh, a Shia teenager um, to hold them mm-hmm. for ransom. Um, so, you know, that was... That's when, you know, Scott Shane tells me, the New York Times reporter tells me, oh, that's when he was radicalized and hooked up with Al-Qaeda is when he was in prison in Yemen. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Wait, if you're already planning to kidnap a, guy, a couple of guys... With Al-Qaeda. Uh, wouldn't you... Does, yeah, with Al-Qaeda, wouldn't you technically have been... I'm not sure I follow necessarily the timeline on that one, but right. <laughs> but yeah, like it's it's. I mean, it it seems pretty clear that he was already well involved with some people over there. I mean, maybe at that point he was just a you know a regular guy just working for the U.S. government. I don't and, know. And, well, and then but, it was uh, the U.S. government that sought his release in 2006. They were saying, oh well, you know, he hasn't been charged yet. We don't feel comfortable with an American citizen in in prison in a foreign country. So right. they sought his release at that point. Um, and I've read reports that have said that – actually, I think it was the Wikipedia article that said that uh, Yemeni officials said that he had repented. So I, I don't know how, oh. how you rep- repent in like a, less than a year for like trying to kidnap a teenager. But, you know. I'll tell you. Get me out of prison. I'll repent. I'll, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, I got my finger in every pie in the case that it gets me out of there. 
yeah, and and you know, and then it it you know that's sort of when I remember at least we start hearing all about AQAP. Mm-hmm. Al Qaeda, mm. Arabian Peninsula, and it becomes yeah. like this is the new major threat, right? Like, okay, maybe you know Al Qaeda and uh, all these other different countries, maybe they're not so fierce at this point. Remember, this is before like the rise of ISIS as the new big bad guy, uh, and uh, he, you know, he is sort of like the, he's the leader there, and and you know, Yemen is the poorest country on the Arabian Peninsula. It is, uh, it is. Large parts of the country basically kind of untouched by the central government, which is true for basically all of the countries, but none of them have sort of the same um, precise history that Yemen has with with civil warfare in the 20th century uh, and 21st century. Um, And, you know, he becomes this sort of major figure, this real big boogeyman out there. He's already a boogeyman, but he comes in this boogeyman with like sort of like a proto-ISIS. Like, you know, he's always on the move. He's got this large parts of the country that are basically ungovernable. And at this point, too, you know, in, in, you know, late 2000s, there's huge protests against the government in Yemen, too. And so there's all this unrest and there's all this sort of like terrorism at this point. The Yemeni's government is getting $150 million a year from the U.S. government to fight AQAP. Apparently not doing such a great job, but who knows if that was the actual fucking intention there in the first place. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then all of a sudden he's killed. 2011, he is, he is taken out. Uh, well, they tried one time before and they missed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Obama tried in May of 2011 and he misses. Which is like I don't know how I mean. I thought the whole point of drone drone strikes are supposed to be very targeted. He hit the wrong yes. preschool. Yeah. <laughs> September thirtieth, twenty eleven. I mean, that's the thing too that's like makes um, Alakwi singular is that he is the first American citizen killed, murdered by targeted drone strike approved by the president of the United States. Um, which is a pretty. Uh, I mean, you know. This is a pretty big deal, and it was a really big deal when it happened, too. I mean, to I'll give some some of the lamestream media some credit in that they they people did feel like a line was crossed here. <laughs> Although I don't know how much how long that kind of shock and outrage lasted. Um, but just a few weeks later, after Al Lakwi was murdered, um, and Obama approved that strike, he approves another strike. Uh, and kills Anwar's 16-year-old son, who's also an American citizen. Um, it was, that was pretty devastating as well. Yeah, and, you know, I just want to mention really quick, because I think it's just, like, super important to understanding, like, how the world works. Um, you know, Obama put al on his kill list in, in 2010. And then, like, yeah. within, like, a month, the Treasury Department put him on their list of, like, designated terrorists. And then the United Nations Security Council put them on him on the list of like people connected with Al Qaeda, and it all happened like within like a week or two. Um, so it was just like you know Obama puts a U.S. citizen on the kill list, and then like all these other like institutions, the Everyone Treasury Department, it. the United Nations, they followed suit to like preemptively legitimize what was coming. And I just think that's like really important to understand uh, for for people who like don't necessarily know the extent to which the u.s uh controls like global institutions um this is something that i've talked about like with the imf and the world bank in another recent article but like you know um they have like a lot of pull over like these supposedly independent organizations and uh they preemptively backed obama's killing of an american citizen um although i will note that you know 
it, for those who, who who may not remember, Obama did threaten to drone other American citizens. It was the Jonas mm-hmm. Brothers. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the crazy thing is too in the in the aftermath of the killing of uh, uh, Alaki's son, I, I think there was a uh, there was a like a press conference where a reporter asked, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was some flack for either the White House or National Security Council. Um, but but anyways, for the administration, where they were like, well, this fucking, I mean, you guys killed a 16-year-old American, like, you know, a child. Yeah. Uh, and the guy was like, his dad shouldn't have joined Al-Qaeda. And like, I'm not <laughs> exaggerating there. Like, he was like, you know, it's it's his father should have thought of that before he joined Al-Qaeda and planned these attacks against Americans and sort of like translated into this. is like, if you fuck with us, we'll fuck with you. But like, well, you and already kill killed family. the guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and, and that that's the crazy thing. It's like, you know, Trump. I mean, well, I mean, we'll get to Trump of Trump's involvement in this in a second. But I remember a lot of hay was made of like Trump being like, "Well, we should just kill American terrorist families," or excuse me, not American terrorists. We should just kill terrorist families. And it's like, well, first of all, a lot of times you already already do that. But like, Obama did that. Like, he just yeah. killed this guy's son. And and the crazy thing is, it's like Alaki's father. You know, it was known that Alaki was on the kill list. Like, this wasn't this wasn't like a, a yeah. you know a, a something that you know was uh classified exactly yeah. uh and like you know his father tried to do all these lawsuits to try to get the st- to get them to stop to take him off the kill list all cut the ACLU down. I mean, was involved with that yeah 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 I, yeah, I want to like also just like to put a fine point in case people don't understand like this was illegal this is totally extrajudicial like your point about all the international institutions um kind of like laying the groundwork for this is because they're anticipating that there could have been legal action against them. I mean, this was like completely illegal, extrajudicial. He was not charged with any like he wasn't charged with any crimes. This this was not um th- this was like a complete like crossing of the Rubicon, even though it that sounds crazy when you're talking about kind of the crimes of the United States. Like this really was though. Well, he wasn't charged with any capital crimes. I think they were technically charging him with crimes like speech crimes or something like that, you know, incitement Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff. takes like, you know, maybe two, three years in prison, maybe. Yeah, and he got the death penalty for it. And then later, you know, in Trump's, I think, what, second year in office, they kill his daughter, too. Yeah, seven a, years uh, old. In a commando raid. Yeah. Yeah, and a fucking Navy SEALs who... We got to get like a Navy SEALs sound cue or something. <laughs> They come up a lot, uh, and a Navy SEALs uh, uh, a raid on this uh, compound, this raid that went wrong. But it went wrong, of course, because I think a Navy SEAL was killed and a couple were injured. But they ended up massacring. I mean, not only this little girl, but at least ten, you know, up to maybe almost a few dozen civilians uh, in this raid on the small village. And you know, this grandfather kind of just trotted out. You know, Alaki's father's trotted out again. It's like. Yeah, I mean they're just. Killing, He's I guess the most sympathetic character now. in all this. All exactly. His like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and so it's like, I, I mean, through all these I mean, two different administrations, I mean, they killed this guy, and then they killed both of his kids. You know, it's 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 incredible. I mean, God knows. I mean, maybe Biden will kill his wife or something. But like, it's. I mean, they really devastated this family. I mean, not like. You know, the father, regardless of whether he was like an actual, like, you know, Al Qaeda, you know, militant or whether he was what I think more likely, you know, a a CIA plant. I mean, not the most sympathetic figure in the world, whatever. I don't care. You know, at the end of the day, 
killing this fucking guy was was really crossing a a a line that has been crossed many times in America's past. But like with this new sort of technology used, I mean, it was was really incredible. I mean. They killed his daughter the old-fashioned way by just shooting her, but Jesus fucking Christ. Well, it's really like the story of Frankenstein, you know? It's like the U.S. created this, like, monstrosity with Operation Cyclone, and, you know, he's very much a U.S. creation in in terms of, like, him living in the United States for so long. And then it goes to the end of the world to hunt him down and kill him. Uh, It it Mm -hmm. just, like, it pretty perfectly mirrors that that story. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, it's... It's funny, you know, I, I know you mentioned skepticism about the official narrative of the Osama bin Laden raid, um, mm. but uh, supposedly... Which happened just, like, just yeah. real prior, like, right before the killing of Al-Aqwi. I mean, it was like, they were, it was just like... Yeah, know, so they, af- they actually found, after. you know, found documents um, in Osama bin Laden's compound where he was talking about... He was asking for Al-Awlaki's resume. He's, like, saying, how can this guy who's, like, not, like, a fighter... Um, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> how can no, he, know, like, That's not... just so funny. Like, I need to see your CV. Right. Let me call your references. Before I let you run an AQAP. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he was asking for his resume uh, because he's saying, like, how can this guy who's, like, not a fighter, hasn't mm-hmm. really been involved in combat, lead our organization um, where you get respect for your involvement in that kind of stuff? Um, and, you know, there's two uh, two ways to look at that. One is like that um, the U.S. planted it and uh, mm-hmm. was using it to uh, to after the fact justify, you know, their killing of Al-Awlaki. Say, look, Osama bin Laden was like, you know, viewing him as a potential for uh, leadership of AQAP. And then the other view is that like, you know, that maybe that that existed and, you know. And there was suspicion. Right, right. That Right, suspicion, exactly. But, you know, one thing that's funny in that, you know, um, archive that they found that in was Osama bin Laden was apparently at the time, allegedly at the time, uh, talking about how uh, this is like, you know, 2011, talking about how um, Joe Biden was totally incompetent. So if they took out Obama <laughs> and Joe Biden became president, <laughs> the U.S. would just like, dest- like destroy itself from inside. <laughs> If only he could have lasted a little longer to see the day. I know, right? exactly. <laughs> but it's true, though, because I know that Alakwi, so he was like, he um, published in the Al-Qaeda magazine, which then, of course, ISIS like took up the mantle of having coolest magazine after Al-Qaeda. But they had a magazine called the like, Beak. Inspire, Inspire yeah. <laughs> which I think is so cool, because it totally sounds like something you'd see at the dentist or something, you know, <laughs> like Horizons or whatever. But um he like had an he had a piece published in that like right before he died where he said or he claimed that the CIA and the FBI had approached him trying to recruit him. And so it's interesting like that timing and obviously US intelligence would have like known about that. Um like uh, yeah, very I mean they were very aware of like him saying that. Although I can't imagine that that would've been a tipping point for them like icing an asset. That seems a little like not that big of a deal for him to say that. Um, so I don't know. There's like a lot of possibilities there. Maybe he's like, maybe he's responding to suspicion that he feels and he's like putting that out there to be like, no, no, this is why you guys are suspicious because they did try, but I didn't do anything, I swear. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, researching this story, it's like there's there's more questions than answers. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, and I really, you have to place the blame on, the, for me at least, I have to place the blame on the intelligence community. 
um, for just like failing at every turn on on this guy. Um, you know, in the cultivation stage and in the aftermath of nine eleven, failing to investigate him. Um, you know, all these conflicting interests within those agencies that got in each other's ways. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the FBI was complaining about the nine eleven commission trying to interview him. Um, and then, you know, just like liquidating him, you know, um, silencing him. Uh, I think that he probably knew too much, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- that's like, I think people sort of dis, I don't know if they discount it, but like, it's hard to imagine just like how thoroughly penetrated so many different organizations were in America by the FBI and by the CIA, if not before 9-11, then certainly after 9-11. And, and this guy, I mean... Probably has rubbed shoulders with more intelligence officers than than most people who were alive during that time. Um, and yeah, I mean that 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 sort of brings us back to the phone call. Is 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 was that George Tenet asking them to release Alaki? I mean the 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 Houthis kind of they claim it is. Uh, I mean, well, we know it's George Tenet, but like you know, they claim it's Alaki that he's trying to get released. Um, you know, on the other hand, it could just be another guy like that 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 is that, that's there in Yemen, you know, fucking shit up that that the the Yemenis had the um, misfortune of arresting and pissing off their American friends. Yeah, their American friends. Yeah, I mean, um, I yeah, I think the phone call in itself is newsworthy because it shows that they had people deep with inside Al Qaeda. You know, um, mm. it, it, yeah. what what confuses me is like if you got somebody who's like inside Al Qaeda, if you're the CIA and you got somebody who's inside Al Qaeda and he's in prison for this like bombing, um, you'd think you'd like try to have like everybody released, not just this one guy, because like this one guy gets out and everyone's gonna be like, oh, why'd he get out? You know. <laughs> It's also pretty high level. I mean, George Tenet making that call is pretty high level. Yeah, and he said he says in the recording, I talked to everybody in my government about this phone call. Um, you know, yeah. w- one thing that's in the 9/11 commission report and uh and I think is noteworthy is that like George Tenet was like super tight with the Saudis too. Um mm-hmm. he, you know, uh I I quoted Ray McGovern from a BBC report. Um I'm sure your viewers are familiar with Ray. Um and you know, he was talking about how Tenet was always like too busy schmoozing with foreign leaders to like do anything about to prevent 9-11. But one thing that's in the commission report is that uh, after um, Tenet brought up to the Saudis about like asking them for help with Osama bin Laden and they their response was like encouraging. So like Tenet made him like some kind he gave him some kind of like, you know, fake position to like just deal with the Saudis and Osama bin Laden. Um, so and, and Al Qaeda, of course. So, you know. Tenet was like, he was the CIA director through the USS Cole bombing, through uh, th- through the 9-11 attacks and the U.S. response. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, reports that he, you know, greenlit the torture program. Um, he uh, emphatically made the case to George Bush that Iraq had WMDs based on, this is one thing that was like crazy to me is Bob Woodward's book recounts this story about how Tennant went to the White House and met with Dick Cheney and George Bush and was telling him, like, look, we have these satellite images that prove that Saddam Hussein had, has these WMDs. And George Bush is like, like, that's all you got? And he's like, this is, a, <laughs> this is a slam dunk case. He leaps up off the couch. He's like, this is a slam dunk case. Um, and Dick, George Bush is like, yeah, I don't know. And Dick Cheney's like, yeah, this is a slam dunk case, you know? 
Um, but it's it's interesting how like yeah, of course George Bush is like you know pretty close to being evil incarnate, but you know with Dick Cheney and and George Tenet by his side, you he's almost a more sympathetic character because these guys are just so bloodthirsty and and evil and like uh you know obviously misdirecting uh intelligence um yeah george Tennant is i mean if you we have a lot of backstory on him in the uh in the 9-11 series and some of his uh some of his friends and uh and some uh, some some of the foreign leaders some of his friends also um rub shoulders with and schmoozed with as well uh my my question was like why would the houthi release this now like what what would what's sort of the impetus for the release you think well, as I understand it, because, you know, they, you know, took control of the central government um, in Sanaa, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is that uh, they've gotten, over the years, um, they've uncovered more and more kind of important files. Um, so I, I don't know if, if it comes at this moment because of the change of administration so much as mm. it coming because they have it now. Um and it's it's really interesting to see. I mean, they also released, uh, and this is briefly touched in my article. They also released, um, you know, documents from the State Department that uh, showed that they had an interest in build, building a U.S. military base in the port of Aydan, and they're talking about, um, you know, the woman there and uh, there being, you know, um, synagogues and and stuff like that. Uh, you know, th- things for U.S. things of interest to U.S. military uh, personnel. Um, so yeah, I think that it's, you know, they got it and they, they wanted to release it. Um, you know, um, one reason why I could think that they would blame Alaki if they, even if they weren't really sure that it was him is because he was a central AQAP figure, but you know, by, by the nature of the call, it's like undeniable that whoever it was, even if it wasn't Alaki, uh, this guy was involved with AQAP. Um, and if you look at like Yemen today, um, this suits the, I mean, it's, it's, it suits their interest to release this because the U S and AQAP are like, you know, they're technically at war, but they're like really on the same side. Um, absolutely on the same side. You know, you, you have, you have, uh, the U S being a part of the, this coalition and, you know, supplying them with, uh, you know, armored vehicles and all kinds of light weaponry and such. Um, and that like is being given from the coalition to like Al Qaeda fighters. Um, and you have the coalition like actively recruiting Al Qaeda fighters and it, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's like, it's like whether, whether, whether you're with AQAP or the UAE, uh, because you're like doing the same shit, right? You're still like trying to like remove the Houthis from power. Um, you're still, uh, you know, operating a lot of, a lot of the same regions. Um, and you're on the same payroll. So it's like, um, Really, uh, you know, it, it show it, the, the recording. What it shows is that, like, that it's not a recent phenomenon that the U.S. and Al Qaeda are on the same side. Um, it's it's it, it's longstanding, which we knew. Um, we, we we know that, but it's it's just like another data point in that like very complex mm-hmm. uh, that complex graph, you know. Yeah, and I would say it's important enough to have the actual like you know. D- the head of the CIA himself get right. involved instead of sending like the attache. I mean, that's, that's right. usually how I would think something like that would go down is you'd have the guy from the embassy cruise over there and be like, listen, you know, we need to get Frank out of prison or something like that. But, you know, to make that high level phone call, I mean, that, that shows that it's a, it's a sensitive fucking matter that for one reason or another isn't handled by the person 
Yeah, and just listening to his voice, he's so emphatic about it. He's like so. Yeah. Uh, he, he almost sounds like scared shitless, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I spoke to John Kiriakou for the follow-up article I did, and he was saying that this is not uncommon that like the CIA director would make this kind of phone call uh, for a CIA asset who is detained in a foreign country. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I just I I think that you know people really. Uh, there, there's some links in my my report that I really hope that people would like check out and understand that just shows how like Al Qaeda brigades. One guy who's on the U.S. you know terrorist terrorist list for being a part of Al Qaeda is like leading a brigade that's uh, been incorporated into the uh, UAE uh, sponsored portion of the coalition, and they're just like they're Al Qaeda, but they're like fucking patrolling. This you know city streets and U.S. armored bearcats and shit. Um, yeah. So you know it, it's like this. It's like you know the same thing with Ukraine is like, um, you know we're not going to directly like fund the Nazis or the terrorists, but like at, at this point, um, but like we're going to work with people and give them the stuff to give to them, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah. doesn't matter how unsavory it is because like really what's important here is like geopolitics. Like uh, we need uh, Yemen to be uh, pliant. Because it's like one of the most important uh, ports in the world, you know, or port areas in the world, um, trade routes, uh, and and it's mm-hmm. right next to, it's right on Saudi's doorstep. So, um, and it, you know, the same thing with like Ukraine and Russia, it's like right, right across, you know, the divide. So, um, right. yeah, it's you know, I, I really uh, hope that people can can understand that and uh, and realize that like this, the Houthi, the revolutionary Houthi government is like fighting this like. It's incredible. Like, people are always like, oh, well, they're Iran back. But it's like, yeah, Iran's, like, pretty fucking far away. And meanwhile, they're yeah, fighting yeah. the yeah, UAE. They they're fighting <laughs> the United yeah. States. They're fighting Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Yeah, Iran's not exactly, like, landing troop ships, you know. Right. There, and, like, off, you know, offloading all this crazy shit. Yeah, it's, it's it, I mean, they're, yeah. they're fairly isolated from anybody that could be called their allies. It's, it's pretty impressive, actually, that they've maintained yeah. it for so long, you know. I will say, if you've seen some of the videos of the Saudi troops fighting, it becomes a little more understandable how they're winning. I'm thinking particularly of a three-car pileup uh, in the desert video that I saw, which is like nothing around except for these three armored vehicles, and they all basically hit each other. Oh, yeah. Um, That's yeah. like the Ara- – you can hear the Arabic version of – yeah, Well, it makes maybe. sense that they're partnering so much with Israel now because both of them are so prone to fuck-ups. Exactly. Yeah. It's a hell of an article. I mean, we'll obviously link to it and we um everyone should check out the other links and the and the follow-up piece that you have as well. Um it's it's just like a, a an incredible scoop and it's a shame although not surprising that it hasn't been picked up by a lot of outlets. Um because I think uh yeah, we played some of the tape. Listen to the full audio. It it, it is really, you know, it's it, it's it's shocking to hear. Thanks so much. Yeah, anything you want to plug before you get out of here? Yeah, I mean, if people want to follow me on Substack, uh, it's free. I don't put anything behind a paywall. If you know you want to give me some money every month, uh, it means that I can devote more time to uh, working on my Substack pieces. Um, but uh, it's real Alex Ruby. That's R U B I at sub, uh, dot Substack dot com, and I'm the same on Twitter uh, at real Alex Ruby. Perfect. Well, Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much.
Brace. Yeah. I have a new theory. Wow, great. (laughs) Don't be mean. No, I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah. What is it? (laughs) Okay, so I just thought of this. This is a new theory. The Bin Laden raid Mm -hmm. actually long con cover up for laying the groundwork for it to be okay for them to murder Al-Alakwi and that being the real target because Bin Laden already did. You think he's been dead? I think think he's he's been dead. I think he's still alive. You think he's still alive? Yeah, he can't kill a gamer. Where's he at? None of my business. That's the whole thing with Bin Laden. I've always thought none of my business what that guy's doing. No one has ever said that, ever. That was a common theme in the early 2000s. It's like, you know what? This Bin Laden guy, none of my fucking business. I don't know the guy. I don't want nothing to do with him. You know, it's if you got a problem with him, that's between you and him. None of my business. And on that note... <laughs> and on that note, my you name... Like my theory? I like your theory, but you didn't say anything after I stopped talking. Well, I don't know. I did, well, because, I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, he could... I, I'm not... I mean, that could be true. I don't know. The, the Bin Laden rate is so crazy. Yeah, yeah. None I know. of it I, is none of it is right. One of my biggest regrets. Also Navy SEALs. I know. But I mean none of it's right. And I do think all of it was planted. Well oh, oh like all the shit like oh like yeah, yeah, he had yeah. porn on his computer and all that kind of he, stuff. Or they just were like, What could we make it seem interesting? They had to they had to piece together so much you know, there had to be so many extra storylines and so many produced moments. Yeah. The Oscar movie, all of it. In order to kind of like build up whatever fucking story everyone needs to accept. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I yeah. think the like vice porn stuff or whatever that wherever that article ended up. Which article is that? There was like, I don't know if it was in Vice. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if there was in Vice or in something, but about all of the porn and the games and all oh, the crap okay. on his computer. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. But if they I... needed to burn an asset, it'd be kind of a very you know intense. The long con. That's what I'm always saying, dude. If they ever find porn on the guy's computer, they'd be like, well, he was working for the FBI. (laughs) Just any porn? Yeah, any porn. I don't think Obama, oh, excuse me, Osama had weird (laughs) porn on his computer. (laughs) Obama, on the other hand. Oh, yeah. Well, remember there was a whole theory that Obama was gay? Oh, yeah. You know who believes that theory? Ben Mora. Talk to him. He thinks Obama's gay. I think he has the whole thing about it, yeah. We talked uh, about it when I went on his podcast. If that's his lived experience, then who am I to argue? Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Barack Obama. <laughs> I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. This has been the podcast, Turonon. That's a little bit that we started adding just a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like eight fucking months ago, Liz. No, this is this is a new thing that you started doing. You're trying to prank me. You're trying to prank me. You're trying to prank me. I'll relapse right now. I'll relapse. I'll relapse right now. Okay. But I could. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.